we're nearing the end of a series on what kind of church, where we've been asking the question, what kind of church does God want Church Central uh, to be? And we've seen loads of things on this series. We've seen that we're to be a church on a mission. We're to be a church for the nations, a worshipping church, a church where God lives, a community, a praying church, a generous church. And next week we've got another type of church that we're going to have as well. So there's one more after today. So today's the penultimate uh, service in uh, meeting, um, sermon even. I'm there in this series. Just tune in in the introduction. I'll be all right for the rest of the time. Um, Now today I'd like to look at another characteristic of a church that I think in some ways sums up some of the other ones we've looked at. And in another way, acts as a helpful balance to some of the other characteristics we've looked at, as we'll see, um, to stop us going too far in one particular uh, direction. And that's the characteristic I'd like to look at, is that God wants us to be an obedient church. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be an obedient church. And the passage I want to look at is in Ecclesiastes I'm going to slow down what I'm saying now because I know Ecclesiastes is hard to find in your Bible, just after the middle. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, verse 13. It's going to appear behind me. It might be worth having it open because I want to sum up this book a little bit and you might want to flick about uh, as we go on, but not for the whole time. But Ecclesiastes 12, 13, I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. Second last verse in the book and it says this, Now all has been heard... Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. What's the duty of all mankind, according to Ecclesiastes? Fear God and keep or obey his commandments. There we go. That's simple and concise. Isn't that a short sermon right there? Well, it's a very, in a sense, it's a simple idea. In, fact, in, a, sense, in a sense, saying just that phrase uh, does the job bringing that to our attention. However, I think this idea of obedience, particularly throwing in maybe the idea of, sort of fearing God, what that means, we'll come to that later, I think needs to be delved into deeply. Because this is an incredibly important idea. And uh, it's an idea we might have many questions about, actually, although on the surface it seems quite simple. So I just want to ask three questions today. The first two will take almost all the time. The last one will be very quick right at the end. And the questions are these. Why is obedience to God's commands, or keeping God's commands, as the the wording of this translation, uh, why is that especially relevant to us as church central today, as a church and as this church today and at the moment? Second question I want to ask then, following on from that, is, well, but why is obedience to God's commands always relevant to us as Christians? And what is its relevance? Is it kind of important? Is it very important? How does, it, how does that work? And finally, let's make it practical. What does that mean? What is it, keeping God's commands on the ground, what does that look like for us today, okay, individuals and as a church as well? So let's ask the first question. Why is this, from this slightly strange book in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, why is this very relevant to us as a church today? Now, whenever a verse starts in a sermon, now all has been heard, and you've heard nothing of it, it's probably worth going back a little bit to work out what the matter this verse is concluding is. So to answer this question, it would probably be worth looking at the context. What is this book, Ecclesiastes, of which I've read, after the writer's expecting you to have read 12 chapters of this book up to this point, what's this book about? 
Now, this book, if you've come across it before, is uh, different from a lot of books in the Bible. It's like a discussion about uh, a certain part of, of what it is to be a, a human living in the world we live in. And uh, it's, some of it is confusing. Some of it is slightly puzzling. How does this fit in? And it needs to be seen, uh, all the verses need to be seen in context of the book, but also the book in the context of the Bible as a whole as well. And basically, I, I'm not intending in the next five minutes to sum up completely and perfectly the whole book of Ecclesiastes. But I think I can give, hopefully, a bit of a helpful um, guideline for those who don't know this book and for those who've read it before, just to help us with this book if you go back to it later. Because the book of Ecclesiastes essentially is a discussion about a, a dilemma that we all have in life. Okay, Russ, funnily enough, uh, alluded to it just with a throwaway comment a second ago. Um, it's the dilemma, how much do we live for the moment... And how much do we live for the future? You said something about that. You said you live in the moment, don't you? How much do we live in the moment? And how much do we live for the future? That's the kind of question going on in Ecclesiastes. And there's a verse in chapter 3, verse 11, that frames this dilemma. And I want us to just think about it. I want your minds to whir on the dilemma. See if you get it first as we see what the answer that's given is. Um, 3, verse 11 says this, that God has made everything beautiful in its time, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men and women as well. So there's this tension, isn't there? We can live for the moment, in the moment, for enjoying the present, or we can live for the future, what's going to come, what the results of the present and the things we're doing now are. So, for example, there's God made everything beautiful in its time. We, we enjoy the things we have. We, for you, it might be a, a fine Pinot Noir that you enjoy on a Saturday evening in front of X Factor. I don't know. It might be a, a, a steak. It might be a warm bath. You might like to wander around Kew Gardens if you ever got the chance to do that. It might be the uh, transcendence lyrically and musically of a song like what does the fox say i don't know i had to get that in today because i've been talking to everyone about that week what a tune anyway (laughs) um so we appreciate the moment we see the beauty that's there now however we don't find satisfaction in living just for the moment as it says here we've got eternity in our hearts and surely there's there's a sense of that of we're living for something beyond this life but also, that counts for this life as well. As we see eternities in our hearts, it, it tugs us away from just the moment to thinking about whatever's next, to thinking about tomorrow, not just today, to thinking about the consequences of what we do today, the outcomes of our decisions, the achievements that we could build up through the things that we do at the present time. And actually, both of these elements of life are really important, really good. We need to keep them together. But at the same time, if you're to get too imbalanced and just live too much for today or too much for tomorrow, well, that could be a problem. That would be an unhealthy, unbalanced life. So I would imagine for most of us, we'd see this quite clearly if you were to live every single moment in isolation. If Russ meant earlier, I live in the moment, what he meant was, I never think about anything that's happening after this moment. I'm just going to do what seems best at this moment every time. I guess we'd think, you know what, we'd want to probably discuss that might not be the best. That's not what you meant, is it, Russ? No, no, no. But if that was, and some, some people make this mistake, the kind of seize the day, carpe diem mentality that says, I will just, I just need to act. I need to do something. 
I'm not going to think about the consequences. I just need to do something. Whatever that decision is, that makes it right. Many people would, would think like that. I will just make this choice, and that almost uh, makes it a good choice to make. And I'd imagine for many of us, we'd see problems uh, with that. Uh, however, Ecclesiastes is not so concerned about challenging that imbalance, living too much for the moment. It's actually going the other way. The book of Ecclesiastes challenges the person who would live too much for tomorrow, too much for visible results and future successes. This is the phrase in Ecclesiastes. If you read it before, it's this, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So, he's laugh, Steve's laughing. That's almost psychotic, Steve. That's, a, that's like we should be weeping into our hands on that one. I like, but it, is, it, brings a, it brings a smile because it's like, wow, that's so kind of like low down. It's so somber for a book of the Bible. I mean, what does it mean? What it means is this. It, it talks in that phrase of uh, living purely for tomorrow. The writer puts it like this. is like chasing after the wind. Tried chasing after the wind recently? What, this is what will happen. You will never catch it. That's what will happen. If you live for tomorrow, we all know tomorrow never comes. And we just want bigger. We want more. We want faster. We're trying to catch it up. Learned this most as a teacher, actually. Teaching taught me a lot of things. This one probably most. Uh, and there'll be teachers in this room today, and you can appreciate this, I'm sure you can. If you tell me you can't, I think you're probably lying. But anyway, and others I think will probably work it out too. You get to this point of the year, uh, it's, it's tail end of the term. You're kind of clinging on till Christmas and you see your friends and you say, 20 days to go. 20 days. I think some of you probably wish it's 20 days. How much is it? Some of you will know this. <laughs> See, I love it. Absolutely. How many minutes is that? Anyway, sorry. Um, you say 30 days to go and then a week, 20 days to go, 10 days to go, two days to go. You make it. Finally, it's Christmas. I know you have rest a couple of weeks, you get back. It's the first day back at term and you kind of see your friend. Again. What's the first thing they say? three months till Easter. <laughs> it's true. It's what happens. In a sense, I've, I've done it. I've got to put my hands up and say I've done it. But when you reflect on that, there's a certain meaninglessness about it. It's just living for tomorrow. It's all about tomorrow. If you're living your life without God, it's probably well worth taking a read of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it's not the most cheery argument on the planet, but it's persuasive. We cannot just live for tomorrow. We can't. One of the biggest parts of living for tomorrow is living for tomorrow's achievements, the things we will achieve tomorrow, what we can accumulate tomorrow, how much more money we can have tomorrow, how much things can we do for tomorrow, and the things that we can see the success of what we're building today, tomorrow. And you know what? It doesn't work. We can't just live for the next experience or holiday, the next accumulation or achievement. There must be something more to life than that. Something everyone would ponder that at some point. We've got to come to that conclusion. However, the danger for us as Christians is to read Ecclesiastes as if it's talking about them over there. It's just about kind of secular people don't believe in God. Now, this book's got something to say to us as well. Because let's face it, we've got exactly the same temptation. As a church, what are we concerned about? What are we thinking about? Well, we're concerned about the future. We have outcomes to achieve. We have consequences that we'd love God to bring about from our actions. In a significant sense, as a church, Church Central is living for tomorrow. Made it clear in the series, haven't we? Right at the beginning, we did at least two, maybe three talks on this. We are a church on a mission. 
Being on a mission means there is a sense in which you're living to fulfill the mission by tomorrow. If you fulfill the mission today, you are no longer on a mission. That's how it goes. We have achievements we want to see happen in the future. Jesus, the most talked about person in this city. The church as a national exhibition center for God's glory. These are promises we feel God's given to us as a church to direct us into the future. We want to see the many people God has for us in this city become Christians and become part of the church. And you know what? Those are fantastic things. Those are excellent things. Mission and that sort of vision is why Jesus designed the church. It's why he set it into motion. It's why he poured out his spirit on the church to be a great commission fulfilling machine. That's how it was supposed to be and is supposed to be. That means the Great Commission is when Jesus gathered his disciples and said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go to your cities. Go to your countries. Go to the ends of the earth. We do have goals. We have a vision. And it directs our personal actions and decisions as a church today into the future. And I mean, I've got to say this as well. It's, we've got to say that these achievements are not fleeting. They're not just things that will keep us busy for a bit and even help the kind of weight of human happiness slightly on the scales before we all snuff it. Now, these achievements have eternal significance. To quote from the apocryphal book of Gladiator, what we do in our lives echoes into eternity. Remember Russell Crowe shouting that at some soldiers in that film, I think. But what we do in this life echoes into eternity. These achievements are important. However, still, we must heed the warning of Ecclesiastes. There is a very small step from having goals to becoming completely orientated around the fulfillment of those goals. It's very easy to let our achievement of the mission become the only indicator of how well we are doing and success in the Christian life. I remember probably it was the the first week, I can't remember which one, but Jonathan revealed when people ask him the question, how is your church doing? How he would answer that question. Very interesting when we answer questions like that to reveal what's going on inside us. If someone asked me that question, I'd say things like, well, these are the ways we're growing. And uh, these are the people who've been becoming Christians. These are the ways in which we're making inroads into our city. Successes, achievements that we can see in the church. That's okay. But here's the question must be asked to that. What happens when we're not growing as a church? What happens if we stop seeing people saved for even a short period of time, people becoming Christians? What if we go through a period where it looks like we have stalled a little bit? Does that instantly mean God has deserted us? What do you think times like that? You could see that in your own life maybe as well. God, God suddenly has turned against us and he, he doesn't love us anymore. or he's, he's left or he's just furious with us. Well, I think at times like that, if that happens, it's a time for reflection. It's time to look at what you're doing and look around the church and think, you know what, that would be the, what we do as leaders if time like that came about. But I think we should be very careful about jumping to that conclusion for the simple reason that throughout the Bible, there are many helpful examples of people in exactly that situation who God was with massively, despite the fact that the achievements and the visible success wasn't there. Best example, usually in this case, is Jesus. And it definitely is in this case. Think about Jesus. Jesus is regards success of his ministry, achievements of his goals and vision, for some of his ministry, that was going, you could say, going very rosy. He's got crowds following him. So he's famous all around the region. 
let's just think for one moment, of one moment in Jesus' life. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's being tempted by the devil to not go to the cross. Okay? The biggest decision made in human history, definitely in Jesus' life. Now, what's, what could, as he looked around and said, well, why should I obey? Well, is God with me at the moment? Let's look around. Let's look at Jesus' achievements at that point. What, what achievements could he see? He could see the crowds that once followed him have now turned on him, and the next day will call for him to be killed and crucified. His, one of his friends has betrayed him to the authorities to be killed. He's very clear on that. His elite squad of disciples, his very, very best, can't even stay awake to pray. That's how shallow it seems their commitment to Jesus is. And obviously the whole lot of them are going to go and his very best friend will deny that he ever knew him. Looking around as regards results, success in that sort of sense, you know what? You couldn't see a lot visibly at that moment. If Jesus' governing criteria of life was what he could see that he'd achieved, well, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Why? Why bother? Why not just skulk off into obscurity and let someone who God is actually blessing do the work? Why did he do it then? What kept Jesus going? What was the secret of his perseverance and his faithfulness? I think he was on exactly the same page as the writer of Ecclesiastes. When all's said and done, it's not about our visible achievements or our results. It's not about what we can see that we've done. It's about two things. Fearing God and obeying his commandments. God, would you, Father, would you take this cup from me? He's wrestling. Could someone else do this? What will be the consequences of this? This this isn't going to go anywhere. You see, I need to get the crowds back. I need to to really work with these sleepy prayers. I mean, they're useless. Come on, I need to get back to them. What would it gain for me to go to the cross? But actually, not my will, Father. Your will be done. He feared God. God and he obeyed, he kept God's commands. For us, it's exactly the same. It's our ultimate foundational duty. It's our guiding principle as a church. It's the plumb line we will ultimately be judged against. It's what God's looking for in us. But I guess you still might ask, well, but why is it so important? Or how important really is it that we do this? Johnny. And so the second thing I said I'd look at is the question, why is obedience to God's commands always relevant to us as Christians? Now, if you're not a Christian here, you might find this a strange thing to say, but obedience is something of a tricky subject for us as Christians sometimes. And that would particularly be because as a church here, we would major on the unearned grace and favor of God. Now that phrase might mean absolutely nothing to you, or it might mean a whole lot to you. But for any of us, it's always worth going over that again and really working out what that means. None of us are going to harm from that. It's going to do us good. So what does that mean? What does it mean to say we rely on the unearned grace and favour of God? Well, it means this. We believe as Christians that none of us can earn God's favour. We cannot earn his blessing. We cannot earn his love for us. We can't earn it through our goodness. We can't earn it through our our religious observance. We cannot earn it through our obedience. Our obedience, in one significant sense, does not impress God and turn his heart towards us as if that's the thing that brings him to us. And it's because it's, our obedience is massively overshadowed by our disobedience. Like a defendant in a court of law, uh, defendants are not praised generally, as far as I'm aware, for the rules they've kept. No, they have to be judged for the rules they've broken. 
So for us as human beings, we stand before a perfect God with more black marks against our name than we can count and we've got no way we can drag out our half-hearted obedience, ziz, acts of obedience, to kind of appease his justice. It just doesn't work like that. But we also believe that there is hope for us, massive hope for us. And it's not because maybe we could do slightly better. It's because of the unearned grace and favor of God that he pours on us. Listen, you might have heard this a million times. You might never have heard this before. This is, this is something worth cherishing every day. God, motivated not by anything in you, any obedience or goodness in you, but from an internal and mysterious burst of love towards you that came from himself, he found a way to satisfy his justice as the judge and to rescue us from the judgment. He did it by sending his son, his very own son, to die as a, a penalty, for it to pay our penalty on the cross. It had nothing to do with how good we were. Nothing to do with our ability. It was purely because of his love, his grace, and his mercy. I stand here as a Christian, and everything that I've ever had that's good is because of God's unearned favor. And everything I will ever have that's good is because of God's unearned favor. And I stand today saying, I live in a realm of God's undeserved, unearned favor. He always reacts in love to me. Wow, do you, do you know that? Do you think about that? That's awesome. It's Christianity right there, folks. And we absolutely love it. Just so you know, we love it. But here's the question. We love it, but it throws the question up. It's a question that's been asked ever since that message was preached, and it will be asked to the day that Jesus comes back. And it's this, why bother being obedient then? Why bother doing what God says? If all my sins are paid for by Jesus on the cross, past, present, future, when I accept him as my Lord and Saviour, what does it matter whether I obey or not? Let's face it, I don't know if you found this before. Obedience can be quite hard. It can be costly for us. Why put ourselves through that? Why can't we just chillax our way to heaven? Surely that would be a much more sensible way of going about it. Obedience, let's face it, as I've even said, it doesn't guarantee a happy or even a successful life. So why bother? And there are many responses to that question. I just want to bring one response uh, today. And my response would be this. We obey because we're his children. That's why we obey. Why is it important? Well, because we're God's children. That's why. Through God's grace... The whole message of the cross is he's brought us into a new relationship with him in which now we can appeal to him as father primarily. We can be his children. And actually, that's the clearest illustration the Bible uses for our relationship with God. And in that, we've got to ask the question, what do children do then? Well, children obey their dad. It's part of being a child. It's part of the deal of being a kid. Some of you will know that you still live under the roof of your parents. You know, that's part of the rules of this engagement, this relationship and how it goes. There's a question, though, that some of you have been waiting for since the start. Okay, then, how does fear fit in then? Because surely with that analogy, fear is an incredibly unhelpful analogy to use to throw into the whole child-father mix. Let's see this. To see how this works... Romans 8.15, it's going to come up there, is, is the verse, I think it's very helpful on this one. Because, yes, I agree with that objection that I've made up that you might or might not have been thinking. Um, fear, there are some cases in which, yes, some senses in which fear is not appropriate. There's a type of fear we do not have of God as his children. 
But there is a still a fear that we would have of God as his children. So let's see what this verse says. The verse says, Paul writing said, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. He's talking to Christians. Again would suggest before these guys became Christians, they had this spirit of fear. Well, what is it? How does that work? It's a fear of God, I think, in the context that he's talking about here. So in what ways, before these guys became a Christian, did they fear God in a way that they don't have to now? Well, I think there's two ways, actually, and it relates to who they see God as and how they relate to him. Firstly, fear of God as the judge. That would be the type before becoming a Christian that he's referring to here. If you're not a Christian here today, the fear of God is relevant to you. And that's primarily because if you continue living the way you're living, and by that I'm not implying that you are the low down worst of all sinners and you're robbing banks every day. I'm just saying if you continue living your life with you in charge, you saying I'm the final decision maker in my life and I'll take whatever punishment I get or deserve, thank you very much. If you continue going like that, when you meet God and you will meet him, he will be primarily operating to you as a judge. He's perfect. He has high expectations of those he's created. And as it says in Romans 3, 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory or God's standards. You know what? Right there is a recipe for fear. But it's a healthy fear. I'll tell you why it's a healthy fear. Because it's a fear that could lead you out of that fear. Because you don't have to continue in that fear. You can be free of that fear. And I'll explain that in a second. But I think that's partly what Paul was talking about. But secondly, and probably most importantly in Paul's mind here, is the fear of God as a different relationship. It's the fear of God as a harsh boss. I think that's what Paul's really getting at with this word slave. He says, slave to fear. You were a slave to fear. Now, in that culture, we think all things, sorts of things are slavery, uh, I suppose. Most of them would be very negative, hopefully. Um, but we probably think slavery in the Old Testament, no, sorry, in the New Testament, is very much like we think of slavery in the modern era. And we would be wrong. Because slavery in the New Testament tended to be voluntary on behalf of the slave. It was a way to solve the problem of debt. You get yourself in massive debt. What do you do? Well, I can't solve it anymore. You can't file for bankruptcy. You sell yourself as a slave to someone, and that's the way to pay off the deal. It's, it's in a sense, it's like a contractual agreement. agreement. It's mutually beneficial. And actually, the clearest example today of this would be someone working with a very harsh boss. I think the two things would not be a million miles away at all. And Paul seems to be referring to this world, saying, you were a slave to fear. And actually, what this, why he's saying this is the people he was talking to, many of them, were incredibly religious. Incredibly religious Jewish people. And actually, there is a sense in which religion, in that sense, is like slavery, or at least like being an employee who serves their boss according, how do we serve in a, in a job like that? Or how would a slave serve then? There is a kind of contractual agreement here. Religion works like this. Whatever religious tradition, religion it's in, whether that's a Christian tradition or a non-Christian tradition, religion works like this. It's very similar. If I do this, this, and this, and I don't do this, this, and this, God, here we go, you do this, this, and this, and don't do this, this, and this. Okay, deal, shake on it. Okay, we're done. There we go, fantastic. I've heard this many, many times through my life about different religions and kind of 
thought, yeah, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's not as simple as that. But I've been struck by the absolute starkness of this lately but as I've visited other religious places of worship uh, for one reason or another. So a couple of years ago, um, I went to a Hindu temple uh, as part of my job as an RE teacher. And I went in and uh, we showed the kids around and stuff. And in the foyer, as we went in, there was a big sign on the wall asking for money for the um, renovation of the building, Okay. And uh, what, they, what they said was they wanted money. I knew that bit, but I was surprised at how they went about asking for it. What they did is this. They said, look, if you give us X amount of money for our building, we will then the priest will then pray for you X amount of times to get X amount of blessings from Vishnu. It was as simple as that. In fact, underneath that, it was this. And if you were to give us, say, X plus 100 times of money, well, we're going to pray for you. The priest will pray for you X plus 100 times. Can you see? That was, it was black and white. It was right there. It's a contract. It's a contractual arrangement. God is our boss. And if we do this, our boss will do this. That's how it works. It's like a bit like overtime arrangement from the way I, I saw it. Well, a few weeks ago, I went to a mosque with a friend of mine again. And it was at the end of Ramadan, the month of fasting for Muslims. And uh, the speaker was speaking about... Uh, trying to explain to, to the congregation there um, what the value of fasting is. And uh, he put it kind of like this. He said, look, here are the situations you could be fasting. It could be, uh, it, it could be that it's in the summer, so it's longer time of daylight, which is when they have to fast. And in that case, actually, you should be really happy because that stores up this much blessing for you, which can then go on the scales and will outweigh this much bad stuff. And actually, if you do it a bit more, or if you go on a bit longer, or if it's harder for you, you know what? You'll get a little bit more stuff. And then he, he went to a different angle. He said, yeah, but of course, there are some things that could balance this out. So if you do this, this, and this, now that will become complicated. And, and uh, there's an exception over here as well, and one here. And what happened was he laid out in very, very contractual terms the exact arrangements of how fasting precisely affected your balances on the scales. And what was it? It was absolutely clear this was a contract going on here. If I do this, my boss will pay me back like this. That's how it went. You know what? This might seem like a sensible way of doing things, but I'll tell you what, treating God like this will lead to one thing, and that thing is fear. Do you know why it will lead to fear? Because, of course, if our value to God is simply on the basis of our performance... That's where it's right with your boss, isn't it? You might get on well with your boss, whatever. But actually, in a professional sense, your only value there is in what you do. If that's how we consider ourselves to God, when we, what will happen when we fail to live up to our half of the bargain? What happens when we don't do all the things that are required of us? Well, then I'll tell you what, you don't get overtime pay. And the slave doesn't get extra dinner. You get the sack. That's what happens. Or you get beaten up. That's what used to happen in the old days with slaves. Relating to God like this will lead to an unhealthy fear that at any moment, because of my actions, God could withdraw his support from me and he could completely withdraw his favour from me. It's actually an incredibly insecure and terrifying prospect, particularly when we consider that we can never meet the contractual demands of God. That's the whole, what the point of the Old Testament is. Look, God's saying, look, you, if you want to play this like a, a master and a servant, you go ahead, but you can never meet these demands. There must be another way. Paul says this, though. 
Christians have not received a spirit that makes us a slave again to this type of fear. We've received a spirit of sonship. What's different about Christianity? Well, we're children now. That's it. We're not only valuable to God because of what we do according to our fulfillment of the contract. No, we're valuable to God because we're his kids. We've been given the right, John says, to become children of God. Many people think all humans, we're all God's children, all big happy family. To, to a degree, I see what you mean, God made us all. But not in this way. It's very clear in the Bible that this is something that we get only through accepting and believing in Jesus. What happens then? Well, we come into his family. And a son, as I'm sure we'd all know, relates very differently from how a slave relates to his master. Or a worker relates to his boss. Or even definitely how a defendant relates to a judge. A son, I guess this is the background thing, he knows he's loved however he lives. He's still a son, however he lives. God does not divorce or excommunicate his children. A daughter comes to her father, not on the basis of how she has met his expectations, but on the fact, bottom line, she's a daughter. Therefore, bottom line, she is loved. That's the difference. It's completely different. If I'd encourage you, if you are living relating to God as primarily as judge or primarily as harsh boss or slave master, I'd encourage you to take Jesus' offer because this is good. This is a wonderful offer. You can become the son or daughter of God. Treating you not as your sins deserve. Well, actually, to do with your actions is not the baseline thing. It's to do with who you are and the fact you're in his family. But when I say that, I don't want to trick you. Because even as a child, we still fear him. It's not the same type of fear, but it could still be described and is in the Bible with that very word. How does that work? Well, this is, this is how I think it works. I, I think back to when I was a, a kid, and uh, there's that intermediate stage between Dad's told me to do this, and this is when I'm going to either do or not do this. And the kind of, you know, the no man's land in the middle. When you're, hmm... Let's think this through here. What shall I do? I remember times like that when I was a kid. Where I clearly knew what my dad had told me to do, and I hadn't made a decision yet. I was thinking what to do. And um, I tell you what, I think I had a feeling at that point, as I considered possible defiance. I know you find that hard to believe for me. I was a good lad. But um, as I considered it, and I could only describe it as fear. I think that was the feeling. I think my dad would make this clear sometimes. He'd give me a bit of help. And sometimes he'd say, Johnny, don't do that, and if you don't do it, you will be for the high jump. They don't have the high jump state for a thing. Sometimes he said, oh, I'll have your guts for garters. Whoever did it, never parents said that to him. Like, I tell you what, if you think about that, if you think about it too much, that's sick right there, really sick. <laughs> I'm going for the high jump one, okay? Now, my dad said, do this to you for the high jump. Now, I was never 100% sure what the high jump was. You know, even now, I don't know, what's the high jump? I, I got flavours of the high jump every now and again. But still, it wouldn't be high jump. What is that? Okay. But as I considered disobeying my dad, I knew what the high jump wasn't. I was absolutely clear what it wasn't. It wasn't, you will be kicked out of this house. It wasn't, you will be disinherited from the Mellor family will. <laughs> it wasn't, I, you will, I will stop loving you. None of those things were ever going to be involved in the high jump. I knew that. Have I still felt a feeling that I could best describe as fear when I considered the high jump? What was it? I think it was a fear of discipline, partly. But I think it was more than that. I did get disciplined if I did things wrong. Because I don't think it was actually 
And when I think about this, I don't think it was distance from my father that made me afraid. It was the closeness of my relationship with my father that frightened me at that moment. It was my love for my dad and my dad's love for me gave me a fear of defying him at that point. And I'll explain it to you. I didn't want the hand that I loved to hold mine to even for a moment sting my backside. I didn't want it to happen. I didn't want the arms that I loved to hold me to be folded in front of me in frustration and annoyance. I didn't want the eyes that sparkled with pride in me to be turned away in disappointment. I didn't want it to happen. And I feared. I feared that happening. So I obeyed. Sometimes I didn't, I guess. Sometimes I decided I'd go with it. I'd risk it. I'd risk the high jump whatever that may be. And maybe it's because of fear of my dad, I'd do it while he was away. And my mum would have a phrase that she'd say in that case, and I, I imagine some would have a similar thing. You wait till your father gets home, Johnny. Some nervous giggles here. I need to say something. The minute I say that, I need to say something. Because I think some of us would have the same experience as me. We knew how that went, and that was, it was a, there was a good thing about that. I think for others of us, there would have been some negative thing about that. I recognize that. It's a, it's a difficulty using the child-father analogy when we talk of God. Because you know, our fathers didn't get it right all the time. Some of you here are still living under the roof with your parents. They won't get it right all the time. And so sometimes it's twisted. So for some of you, actually, you're, you're thinking, I never knew a fear of my daddy. was a big clown. That was my dad. Still is. Big clown. Not even respect. That wasn't a helpful illustration for you of God. On the other side, I think if maybe just with this phrase, you wait till your father get home. I, I would imagine it's possible in this room that some would have been not with a sense of good fear, but a sense of, I don't think he's going to be sober when he comes home. And there's not going to be love in the beating I get when, I, when he comes home. And I recognize that. I, I appreciate that. And I, I'd ask you, I, I know this is hard, but I'd ask you, please, could you try to look past your experience of father to the idea of Father that God has chosen to be the main way in which he communicates who he is to us. My, my dad wasn't perfect, but I thank, my, my, I thank God daily, or as much as I can for his example, because I knew at times of that, you wait till your father comes home. I knew he wasn't going to come back and beat me up. I knew he wasn't going to go overboard. But those words made me afraid. They really did make me afraid. I didn't want him to come back and say, look, Johnny, I expected you to obey me. And I'm gutted. Why did you do it? I didn't want him to say, I wanted to say well done to you. I wanted to come back from work and praise you. But I can't do it, son. I didn't want him to say, I wanted to say well done, good and faithful son. I wanted to say well done, good and faithful daughter. And I still love you, but those words cannot come out of my mouth now. Do we want to live our lives waiting for our Father to come home? That fears me because I want to live my life waiting for my Father to come home. Don't you? And the gap between waiting for my Father to come home and waiting for my Father to come home is so huge that we fear because we want to put him to put his arms around us. We want to hear his praise. Well done, not just I love you, but you know I'm so pleased about what you did, son. So please, how you did, daughter. It's that gap. And when we consider his commands, when we see the things God says to us, that's the kind of thing I think it means by fear him and obey his commandments. It's a big deal. It's important for us as Christians. 
Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and obey his commands, for that's the whole duty of man. You might think it's all a bit arbitrary and dictatorial of God, isn't it? Why would he demand obedience so highly? Is he on some power trip that he wants just us to obey? No, I, th- I think, again, thinking of him as a father makes this clear. His commands are for our good. That's the reason he says these things. They're for the good of all around us. We can't guarantee that when we obey, this, this, and this is going to happen. And it's like, I put money in the machine, it comes out, and if we obey as a church, we will grow this much. And if I obey as a person, this will happen and this will happen. We just can't do it. However, we know he's good. And we know he does it, he tells us to do these things because he's good. If he loved us so much that he'd send his son to die for us, so that we could become Jesus' younger siblings, well, then his commands to us are surely going to be in line with that love. We might not see fully how that works all the time. Really sorry? That's not our job. That's not our role. We trust him that he's good and that he loves us and we keep his commands. We do what he says. So very quickly then, to conclude, let's make this practical for the last couple of minutes. What does it look like to us? What does it mean? Some of this is obvious, I suppose, but just want to make one, one point here, I guess. Um, well, two points, but one will be more than 30 seconds. As a vid- individuals, we've got to be clear on this, it means not doing things. And uh, I'm not going to go through a massive list of things. You know, God says things. We know he says things. I imagine there'll be some people here who've been thinking for ages, you know what, this part of my life is clearly not what God wants me to be doing. But you know what, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Who need to hear it again? No, no, no. It really matters. Fear God and obey his commands. It's important. It also means doing certain things as well. He, he asks things for us. It's an adventure for us as well. Christianity is not just a life of denial. It's a life of advancing his kingdom, moving forward. He cares for those who aren't in this room at the moment. And so he says things to us. Sets our time to pray. Tell people about me. Pray for the sick. Most of all, show love to other people. It's important. Loving fathers saying things to us. As a church, what does it mean for us? And this is the thing I'm, I'm going to end on. As a church, church, what does it mean to obey God and fear his commands? I think it means this. As a church, this church, you want to know about this church and understand us, we are going to take God's word incredibly seriously. We're going to teach it in our services, as we're doing now. We do every week from a passage of the Bible. And we're going to rely on it on all areas of church life. Whether that teaching is in line with modern opinions or whether it's not in line with modern opinions, we're going with the Bible. Now, yet yeah, there are parts of the Bible that are confusing. Some places, the, there's some bits that mean a different thing in the culture they were written than they mean today. That's hard, that's difficult, so we have to study, we have to explain, you know. But more often than not, the apparent difficulties we find within the teachings of Scripture, I think, are usually more to do with how we want to get out of God's commands than they are with any ambiguity in the passage. Well, we want to make the rules up, we want to go with our culture. Like, Is there a way out of this thing? As a church, we want to be locked into God's word and built on God's word. This week we had a public discussion in a curry house in Selyoke on probably the most countercultural teaching in the Bible that there is at the moment, and it's on the, in the subject of homosexuality. And I did a talk explaining how, you know what, it's not that, this, that, that, that particular thing, homosexual acts, are, they're not the worst thing in the world, they're not to be singled out especially. We, uh, Jesus loves everybody. Um, regardless whether they're straight or gay. But you know what? It says in the Bible, and Jesus thought that there were some sexual acts that were wrong. 
and homosexual acts were one of them. We had a public discussion about that, and I was pleased that we had a good time. But you know what? I said this on, in the week, and I'll say it again. On this issue, I don't enjoy talking about it, because if I was to be honest with you, I would sometimes prefer that the Bible didn't say what it said about it. I know friends who've talked to me and said, said, Johnny, you've got to understand, for me as a homosexual, the worst sin is not being true to myself. It's the worst sin. How can you encourage me that the one doing is sinful? That's what people have been telling us for, for years. And they've t- said it with, with, with fists and with words and phrases. I don't think it's a good logical argument, but you know what? That affects me. I empathize, I think, a little with that situation. I feel the pain there. I've heard friends say outright uh, to me, to others I know, listen, if it wasn't for the church's stance on homosexuality, I'd become a Christian in a heartbeat. I've heard some friends say that. I think some people would say that as well. You know what? I wish I could do the cultural thing. I wish I could just say, you know what? Uh, there's a way around this. Let's fudge this. Some people say this. Some people say this. Let's brush it under the carpet because I want these guys to come to know Jesus. But you know what? We're not called as a church just to make people happy in the future. We're not even called just as a church to grow. It's not our only calling. We're not even as a church just called to see people become Christians. It's we are, but that's not it. This is what we're called to do. Now all's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and obey his commands. It's the whole duty of man.